Hello, everyone, and welcome to the crux of the story. This is Gary Sheffer. I'm a professor of the practice of public relations at Boston University's College of Communication. My co-host, as always, is Mike Fernandez, who's the chief communications officer at the global energy company Enbridge. And Mike's also a former BU professor. Hello, Mike. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing well. Finally cold in Boston. And uh, in fact, and this is a I good a, thing. And no, it is not a good thing. And well, you know how the wind whips down Commonwealth Avenue. Oh yeah, uh, in front of our Remember college communication. Well. Yeah. So we have a terrific guest on the crux today. Someone we've been trying to get on uh, the podcast for a while. Allison Taylor, a clinical associate professor at NYU Leonard N Stern School of Business. Her research and writing focuses on corporate responsibility and business ethics at an organizational level. Allison is an expert in just about everything. So I'm going to, but I'll list some of them, strategy, sustainability, political and social risk, culture and behavior, human rights, ethics and compliance, stakeholder engagement, anti-corruption and professional responsibility. In addition to her role at Stern, she serves as Executive Director of Ethical Systems, a research collaboration focused on ethical organizational culture. Allison also has advised companies for years on ethics. Exciting news is that she has a new book coming out in February, Higher Ground. And by the way, that title, first part of the title has some meaning to Allison, she'll tell us. Higher Ground, How Business Can Do the Right Thing in a turbulent world. And according to the promotional material, Allison, that I read, the book covers how can CEOs cut through the noise set to noise to set robust environmental and social priorities? When should they speak out on contentious social and political issues? What does it take to build a healthy organizational culture? And how are we uh, to approach corporate values when society itself is so divided. We'll talk with Allison about her book, her thoughts on trust and barometers, and I don't mean the kind that measure atmospheric pressure. Allison, welcome to the crux of the story. Welcome to the crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hello, this is Gary Shepard. Hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to be here. So, Allison, as I mentioned, your book from Harvard Business Review Press focuses on the landscape for business ethics and how companies can do the right thing. You've been working in this field for a while. What prompted you to write the book now? And can you give us a bit of a preview of it? Sure. So uh, I guess my starting premise for the book is that in the 20s, uh, we have um, completely lost sight of what it means to be a good business. And by that, I mean an ethical business. So we had a consensus for a long time from Milton Friedman, right? It is a business that focuses on shareholder value and doesn't break the law. I think we can all see a business would have a hard time claiming today that that is what makes you an ethical business. We've got pressure on climate change, human rights, 
social and political issues, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, the problem is, though, I don't think there is any consensus on what it means to be a good business if we can no longer anchor to these Milton Friedman principles. And there are very, very siloed approaches between sustainability, ethics and compliance, government relations, risk, communications, strategy, etc. So I try to take an organizational perspective and really say, you know, leaving aside the cynicism and the gotcha mindset I think we can see out there, if you were a CEO who really wanted to be a good business today, what would that take? Allison, welcome. Um, you know, you've stated in interviews and you're writing that Sometimes CEOs lean on public statements about social issues only to stave off reputational risk and that executives may too often feel pressured uh, to take on political matters for public relations reasons with a focus on responding to simply the loudest agitators on social media at the time. Uh, you share that the result of doing this is often shallow and leads to poorly coordinated company positions. How do you address this in your book? That's exactly my position, that we cannot treat communications as divorced from what the company is actually doing. I think there is a tendency, and you hear it out there every day, when should companies stand up for things? And so we, we seem to have developed this view that taking a public position is somehow an end in itself. So the most obvious point I make is you can't treat a communications challenge as just a communications challenge. You can see this um, in a million ways, but um, let's take a very uh, obvious example, which is Bud Light. So Bud Light's problem, right, was that it, it treated its transgender campaign as a separate issue from what it itself was doing on questions of values and corporate responsibility. And then when there was a backlash, the senior leadership uh, fired the marketing person. But the problem was, right, treating this as a marketing campaign without saying how does this connect to the wider commitments uh, this brand has made. So that's a very obvious unforced error of what happens when you treat communication as a problem in itself. We can think of another example uh, after George Floyd's murder, every CEO in America suddenly discovered systemic racism and stood up to say how much they cared about it. And the next thing that happened was that many employees of these companies said, well, I know the CEO is saying they care about diversity, but here's what it's actually like to work here. So we've got in this situation where employees, I think in particular, are undercutting the messages that senior leadership would like to put out there. And this requires, uh, in my opinion, a completely different approach to communications. Yeah, there was one political figure in the 1970s in the U.S. is once said famously, watch what we do, not what we say. Um, and I think that the mismatch is, is a challenge. And you've also said that the public is obsessed uh, with corporate hypocrisy, even though most companies are seemingly sincere about their belief in initiatives like DE&I and ESG. Um, in such a skeptical environment, how can companies balance expectations for leadership in these areas with the need to conduct business? So the first thing I think to say is we need to stop viewing communications as telling an attractive story about all the wonderful things we're doing. 
But to the point in your question, it's then very, very difficult, I think, to say we are doing our best on diversity. If there's a pipeline problem, there's a problem with the wider environment. We are not sure we can get to this goal as quickly as we would like to. So uh, I think there's also this perception, right, that the public can't handle a nuanced message and that saying something other than we are perfect right away is going to draw all this reputational risk. I don't think that's necessarily true. There are many instances where companies have admitted that they are not perfect, admitted they've got problems, admitted they're doing their best. And, and I think very often that goes down better than the sort of status quo, which is this kind of very neat, exaggerated kind of hat stories um, about how everything's great. So whether it's climate change or racism or some other issue, one of the problems is we're in a particularly challenging situation and we're not sure how we're going to get from A to B. So I think what we really need to see from corporate leaders is some acknowledgement of that. And then maybe we can have a better conversation about what, what problems corporations can and cannot solve. So in, in part, this is also an issue of transparency. Right. Uh, it is an issue of transparency, but another I have a whole chapter on this in my book. Um, I think one of the challenges is we overestimate the power of transparency to drive accountability. We sort of whether it's ESG reporting or, or anything else, we have this idea that if companies will somehow disclose, that will solve the problem. But disclosures are, of course, it's just the first step. The really uh, difficult thing is what we're expecting companies to do about these intractable problems. And so I also think we've come to treat disclosure as a proxy for action. And we're telling ourselves a weird story about disclosure that doesn't pay much attention to the receiver of information. So it's a combination maybe of transparency as well as goals followed up by reports on the action taken? It's that. And I think, uh, you know, even more fundamentally, it's maybe corporate leaders being a little bit more honest and thoughtful about here are the things it is in our remit to solve. Uh, maybe we cannot solve climate change without government action. And maybe that raises awkward questions about what the government relations team in our company is doing. So, um, you know, I think what we've what we've got into is this very sort of exaggerated set of claims about about the problems corporations can solve. I see in the classroom a very kind of worrying tendency to say, why would I engage with the political process when I could pressure my employer or pressure a brand? They're quite a lot more likely to respond in messaging terms, but we're maybe not exploring the root causes of how we got here. So I think part of what we need to do is explore those root causes and then say, uh, let's have business be a little bit more sober and restrained and honest about how far they can and cannot go to solve these issues. That's uh, really interesting. I, I love the let's get government relations and the lobbying team on the same page <laughs> with the rest rest of us, including on the CEO and some of our communications. Like, Allison, there are so many things I want to talk to you about. It's hard to choose. Uh, one is something you've written about in the Wall Street Journal recently, stakeholder capitalism, which is something that uh, the people that listen to this podcast are uh, talking about a lot, and famously, some CEOs have pledged to run their companies uh, through a stakeholder 
uh, a broader stakeholder lens recently. You wrote, however, stakeholder capitalism has a lovely ring to it. The idea that leaders no longer focus exclusively on shareholder value, but instead run companies for the benefit of all stakeholders, customers, suppliers, employees, investors, and communities. After all, calls to balance stakeholder interests sound nice, but in the end are impractical at best and disingenuous at worst. At some point, a company leader has to choose whom to offend and whom to listen to. So how do you do that, Allison? Well, my suggestion is that you uh, focus on how your business impacts human beings. You express some practical curiosity about the direct impact you have on human beings, and you prioritize managing those impacts. You prioritize treating human beings with dignity and respect, making your best effort to do no harm and clean up your own mess. Once you've done that, you can be more ambitious, but let's get the basics in place before we uh, prioritize anything else. And I think uh, the other thing to say about this, right, is, it, is that this rhetoric puts corporate leaders in a complete bind. It has got us into this situation where there is a cohort of, of, of stakeholders, there's a cohort of people out there taking the position that if any one of your stakeholders cares about this issue, you as a corporate leader need to be doing something about that. That's a giant problem because all your stakeholders don't agree and because you still need to run a business and make a profit. So this ends up with companies claiming that they can be ambitious on 40 or 50 issues rather than saying we're going to focus on one to three things that our business really impacts and trying to do something about that. So we've ended up in this kind of tick box over-promising, being all things to all people and not being rigorous to say we cannot do all these things. So let's be honest about what we can and can't do. And Allison, you're at a business school. What what do your students, the future business leaders, future business leaders, how do they respond to that perspective? Are they open to it? I mean, it's interesting. I I hear still a really big range of opinion in the classroom about shareholder value, stakeholder capitalism, how business should and shouldn't be more responsible. The most striking thing uh, I hear in the classroom, and I'd be curious if you hear the same thing, is is people in 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 the business school I work in seem more pro-worker than I have seen in generations. We have a long conversation about how we could have HR be more independent and really think about employees. I hear quite a lot of pro-union sentiment. So this is fascinating because I work in a Wall Street feeder school and this is not the cliche about MBA students. So I think that's incredibly telling about where we've got to. And it does indicate, I think, that the pendulum swung far too far in the direction of investors. And there is a need to recalibrate and really think about workers. Um, I see the same thing, Allison. Our, we're a feeder school for PR agencies and in-house communications uh, teams. And the labor sentiment is quite strong on campus and not just here, right. but many campuses. And part of the reason is, quite practically, is many of these students have had experience in retail at places like Starbucks and elsewhere where they feel like they're overworked. Yeah. And and I mean, I I had a discussion in class a few weeks ago because... We've all been following the, um, you know, the kind of ongoing rolling tragedy in Israel and Palestine. 
But uh, McDonald's, as I'm sure you know, got into a bit of a pickle because they have their uh, Israeli franchise uh, funding the IDF, and then they have franchises in Oman and Egypt, for example, uh, funding humanitarian causes in Palestine. And so the, the question that I put to my class was, why is it so important to you that a burger chain takes a position on this geopolitical issue? Arguably, this burger chain ought to be focusing on the climate impact of its core product. And one of the things I heard was, you know, we feel powerless. We feel uh, that we don't have any agency. We feel that politics can't solve the problem. And so having this big, powerful entity stand up for a cause we believe in, that feels meaningful to us. But I don't think that is a good sign for the world. I don't think that's a good sign for business. I don't think that's a good sign for politics. And I don't think that's a good sign for us solving the problems that face us today. Yeah, because I mean, that's, uh, I mean, getting back to your earlier comment about if you want a company or a company's thinking about responding, it should somehow relate to their direct impact on the world. And, you know, we don't go to a burger stand. We don't go to lots of different places to have a position on, you know, what the UN should do or what a country should do. I mean, it seems a little bizarre. Um, but in, in Alan Murray, actually, this past week, who's been a guest on this show, CEO and editor in chief of Fortune magazine, uh, wrote a piece where he said, you know, a lot of companies condemned Hamas for the October 7th attack on Israel, and particularly Israeli civilians. But now many of those same companies are under pressure to issue equal condemnations of bloodshed in Gaza. And then some companies have been criticized because they haven't taken a position at all. And now there's pressure internally in a lot of companies to come out with statements about uh, against Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. How do companies, universities, other organizations actually get this right? Is it just not entering the fray? Um, I mean, I like uh, it's it's really, really difficult. And then the other thing going on, of course, as we've seen, is people having their job offers rescinded or being fired for making a public statement. So I think we uh, need to kind of take a step back and think about corporate voice, leaders voice, employee voice and what the distinctions are um, between these things. A, a leader can make a personal statement about how horrified they are by these events without suggesting that is the position of the corporation. We're seeing this, of course, play out with universities. I like very much the University of Chicago's position, which is exactly that. Leaders can make a personal statement, but it's not our role to suggest this is the position of the, of the University of Chicago or that the University of Chicago has the right or the opportunity to express the view of every Everybody that studies or works at the University of Chicago. And I think we need to think about that in the corporate world as well. There is a woman called Jennifer Say, um, who, who, as she relates it, chose to left leave Levi's because uh, she was increasingly getting upset during the pandemic about school closures in San Francisco and, and tweeting about this. She had quite a big social media account. And she tells a story of the CEO and the head of PR at Levi's hauling her into the office every week to go through her tweets and kind of tell her to shut up because it wasn't aligning with Levi's position in general. So we've got a few issues here. On what grounds do leaders say this is the corporate position? 
If a leader is taking a personal position, is that going to be conflated with the corporation? Can they make it clear they're speaking on a personal basis? And then can you let, can you and should you let employees take a position that is different publicly from the corporation's position? Should they be penalized? Should they not be penalized? Is the message that you need to toe the line with the corporation's position on social media? All of this, I think, raises a load of really uncomfortable questions because at the end of the day, a corporation is not a democracy. Stakeholders are not the electorate, nor are employees. So on what basis do we have corporate leaders deciding how and when to take positions on these really, really no-win conflicts apart from anything else? So in addition to teaching and writing, you serve as the executive director of ethical systems research collaboration that in the long run is about good ethics is good business. Um, I'd be interested in what do you think global companies need to do to better weave ethics into their corporate strategy? I mean, I think part of it uh, means acknowledging this more holistic point of view. Part of it means focusing on problems that you can actually solve. Part of it, I think, means getting uh, beyond this rather sort of bland, meaningless rhetoric about integrity and teamwork and saying we are going to focus very directly on our externalities and on our impacts on human beings. And that's how we should base our ethical commitments. So I recommend rather directly that human rights principles are the best anchor for ethical business today. Another advantage of human rights principles to the point uh, we were just making about Israel and Palestine is human rights knowledges that you should not impose your beliefs on somebody that doesn't share them. So we could use this to anchor in all sorts of ways. It would certainly suggest we cannot impose a corporation's views on an intractable political conflict. It also suggests to take another really controversial example, right? You should provide reproductive health care for your female employees in America because there aren't really any other options. Healthcare is tied to your job. At the same time, you don't get to impose uh, that that healthcare on somebody that is anti-abortion. So I think that is very, very defensible right. uh, from a human rights perspective. And I think I think that is at the end of the day uh, the best place to ground our efforts today. Not to say it's easy and not to say it's uncontroversial, but we're in such a fragmented uh, environment where even democracy and capitalism is being contested that I think questions of corporate values in a global context have become extremely difficult. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. I love your comments, and they're certainly far from bland, and they're certainly direct. Uh, but in a in an online post last month, after attending the UN General Assembly's Climate Week events and sitting through a number of sessions like I have before, where well-intentioned professionals and business people talk about purpose, uh, you wrote, 
So many leadership, so many leadership retreats teaching CEOs authenticity and self-awareness. So little of substance going on, exclamation point. Or am I too critical? Question mark. What's the answer to your own question? Um, I Yeah, I went to the UN uh, Climate Week and what I found was that I was sort of drowning in young people with chat PPT <laughs> solutions on corporate reporting and authenticity <laughs> workshops and a lot of what the cynic in me wants to call kind of parasitic services, rather than actually uh, trying to solve the problem, which is that we need corporations to clean up their own mess and take these issues seriously. So what I fear is we've got into a bit of a situation with job creation for young people with uh, consulting and communication skills. And what we actually need to do is get serious about planting trees and drilling less oil and that kind of well, thing. You have to... Allison, you're going to have to be more direct in your, in your comments. I, I'm not getting this. I'm, I don't know. I hope our listeners do. <laughs> so Mike and I have worked in big organizations, and we know all too well things like silos and bureaucratic processes. And you say that too many companies do build siloed policies and processes to deflect regulatory and reputational risk. For example, they make a zero carbon commitment, but with lobbying and tax avoidance. You look at ethics from an organizational standpoint, yeah. which is the right way to do it. How do you overcome these gaps and inconsistencies? Uh, you make a zero carbon commitment, but at the same time, you may be lobbying or contributing politically to people with different points of view. So how do you how do you close that those gaps? I mean, obviously, it's not easy or we wouldn't be in this pickle in the first place. I mean, I think the most I've, I did a lot of work uh, with the World Economic Forum uh, under the general title. There are articles out there called the rise of the chief integrity officer. So I think what we need is a more strategic and holistic approach to ethics. That sounds like a lot of waffle. What I mean in very concrete terms is we need to get a task force together that has got members of all these functions that deal with ethics. So maybe that means getting communications, risk, sustainability, government relations, ethics and compliance and strategy and HR together and saying, well, this thing has happened. We're under a lot of pressure on racism and diversity. Before we put a statement out, let's look at our commitments to our workforce. Let's look at what our goals are. Let's look at how far we've got. Let's look at how this relates to our sustainability claims. And then we can maybe put out a more thoughtful and restrained and honest message. I mean, I think one of the interesting things is this is maybe one of the most fascinating times to be in communications because you can no longer treat communications as just a matter of messaging. You have to think about how you're going to authentically express this complexity and, and authentically express good effort. But you're not going to be able to do it unless you understand what is going on beneath the surface and really thinking from an organizational perspective about these commitments and their implications. So the folks who listen to this podcast are mostly communicators, either in-house or with agencies. And there's been a lot of talk in our profession, in our uh, industry, that maybe communicators are the ones to lead this effort that you just described, because they have such a broad view of the environment externally and across the the company or enterprise itself. What's your what's your view on that? 
Um, I, I mean, as I've just said, I certainly think communications professionals have a critical role, but they also need to uh, get comfortable with how authentic these commitments actually are before they start to reflect them out there. And that may not be super easy. I talk to a lot of communications professionals that are trying to figure out, you know, is this company serious about this issue? Are they just cherry picking? Am I helping them tell a good story that isn't true? So I think there's a there's a more difficult piece of work, which is kind of making sure the organization has its ducks in a row, making sure, for example, that if the organization has made some a public environmental social commitment, there are human beings responsible and being incentivized uh, to deliver on that commitment. And it's not just some kind of floating goal and KPI out there to um, deflect public attention and there's no connection to the core business. So um, I think uh, I would say that the communication challenge is harder and more interesting than it's ever been. But communications professionals also need to know what they don't know and need to ensure that there is somebody, you know, behind the curtain that's actually making these efforts before they are out there um, saying what the company is actually doing or not doing. Well, well said. Do you, I, I completely agree. And by the way, on, on all of this, uh, putting together sort of a consolidated or consistent approach to ethical responsibilities and uh, impact on society. Is there anyone that, from a, a company standpoint, maybe you identify in your book or in your other writing, that you think is doing it well? Yeah, I think Chivani, the yogurt company, does quite a good job. I mean, they're a private company, so they've got a few more, a bit more leeway maybe than a, a publicly listed company. But they are a yogurt company. They're not a monopoly, which is relatively unusual uh, for a food company in the US. They're focused on improving the US food system and the livelihoods of agricultural workers. They give their employees ownership in the business. Most striking to me, uh, which I think is remarkable uh, in our current polarized environment, they have managed to hire refugees in their factories in Idaho and upstate New York, both very, very red parts of the country, without experiencing any of this anti-woke backlash. And in fact, getting these local communities to support having these refugees living and working there. That is a remarkable commitment to your workers. It's a remarkable commitment to inclusivity. It is a remarkable commitment to focusing and not trying to solve problems that aren't anything to do with you. And I think it it really speaks volumes how loyal and committed Giovanni's workforce really is. Alison, a few years ago, um, in an issue of Harvard Business Review, uh, you wrote about uh, when CEOs should speak up on polarizing issues. In that piece, you made what I think is an interesting distinction. You wrote that companies must consider values and not just shared value, a phrase that is often uh, used in association with stakeholder capitalism. What do you mean by that distinction, values versus shared value? So the idea of shared value is we choose environmental social priorities. We choose to take positions on things to the degree it drives shareholder value. You will see, for example, out there, a lot of people saying we're committed to diversity and inclusion because 
that's a more profitable business. There's a business case for diversity, blah, 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 blah. Um, what I'm really saying is it's not enough to anchor only to whether there is a business case for this issue. In fact, if you do that, you end up saying we're making risk reward calculations that end up with governance by Twitter, as far as I'm concerned. You end up by sort of saying, which stakeholders are yelling at us the loudest and therefore should we rein in our horns? Oh, there seems to be a very, very organized anti-LGBTQ backlash, which is relatively new in this country. Well, let's back off supporting this population and not think about the commitments we've actually made to our workforce and this community in the past. So I think if you anchor to reputation, if you anchor to risk in that way, you will complete easily look directionless uh, in five minutes. We need to think about what anchoring to reputation and public backlash would have looked like in Nazi Germany, for example. So I think, you know, what this implies to me is you do need values, you do need ethical commitments. Maybe you don't need 100 ethical commitments. Maybe you need to decide what's important to your business, important to your employees, have values around those small number of issues. And then beyond that, I think you can legitimately say this is not an issue for my business to get involved in. Right. So in some frame, it's, it's, it's really both is what I hear you saying. And yet it's being choiceful. It's being uh, focused on what your real contribution to society as a business is. Is that right? Focused and honest. Yeah, I think we've got yeah. into this. I think we've got into this situation. I mean, another very good example, right, is Unilever. Uh, sustainability poster child. Paul Polman is yep. famous for yep. um, famous in sustainability, famous for stopping quarterly reporting. If you look at Unilever's commitments, they tend to be thought of as, uh, you know, kind of sustainability best practice. The new CEO has just said very explicitly, we committed to too many things and too many long-term goals. Unilever's materiality map has inequality and poverty on it. I think we can legitimately ask what business a company that makes mayonnaise and ice cream has suggesting it can solve inequality globally. So Unilever itself is backing off and saying we need to think more short-term and in a more focused and business-directed way. Now, we might say, well, that's terrible. Unilever's pulled back on its commitments. I would argue it's good because we actually need the government to play a role in solving inequality. We actually need corporations to pay their taxes and get out of political influence. So I would rather have Unilever saying, let's focus on the things very directly uh, related to our business. Let's treat our supply chain workers properly. Let's think about this in a restrained way. Let's not suggest that we can uh, be a solution for inequality in the absence of government action, because that's not realistic and it's not thoughtful. And I don't actually think it's ethical. You know, to me, it's also interesting, you know, we've got a, a clash in the United States right now relative to ESG. Um, you know, there are a lot of companies that approached environmental, social um, and governance goals uh, thoughtfully. Uh, they almost, you know, wore uh, a badge on their shoulder uh, sort of saying, you know, we do this and it's the right thing to do. And then, you know, we see over the last 18 months or so a backlash from the political right in the U.S. on corporate ESG matters as they dub CEOs and companies that embrace ESG goals as being too woke. Uh, how should companies respond uh, to this kind of backlash recoil, if you will? 
You know, this comes up a lot. Um, I, I certainly think the right wing is behaving in somewhat of a bad faith way they, because they certainly want the campaign finance to keep flowing beneath the surface, even though they're making noises about corporations being socialist and taking on problems uh, that they shouldn't solve. Um, that said, um, I do think there is genuinely an issue with CEOs speaking up uh, on issues that they find kind of convenient or resonating with certain stakeholder groups at the expense of getting the basics right. So one of the things I think is fascinating about this very polarized discussion is that, again, treating your workers and stakeholders with basic dignity and respect is not that much of a partisan issue. So I use two examples when people bring this up for me with me. The first is Hertz, the car company, who has just paid a $168 million fine for having its customers arrested for stealing cars that the customers did not steal. A woman in Florida spent over 30 days in jail because Hertz did this. We can also think about Amazon forcing its uh, warehouse workers to work next to a dead body all day. I don't think in either of those instances, any Democrat or Republican thinks that's I think, yes, most Republicans, I think, would agree that is not okay. So the question is, how have we ended up with CEOs yodeling on controversial social issues at the expense of actually getting these basic ethical standards in place? And would we really have this polarized backlash if they'd said, you know what, actually, we think we need to get the basics right. We don't think it's okay to dump pollution in the river and get the government to clean it up. We do think it's important to pay a living wage and treat our workers properly, rather than uh, what we see out there, which is a lot of empty noise and grandstanding on unrelated issues that is driving some of this backlash. So, Alison, as we talk about these issues from ESG to companies taking a stand on social issues, some marketers and PR professionals would say one of the major elements at play is trust. Yes. Uh, for years, the Edelman PR firm has published its Edelman Trust Barometer, and it tends to get a lot of attention in the business media when it comes out. It's usually kind of triggered around the time of the meetings in Davos with yes. the uh, World Economic Forum. You've been a critic of the Trust Barometer, which seeks to compare public's the public's trust in various institutions from government to business to NGOs. Uh, and you were quoted recently saying, all of this is a form of PR, that trust is something you can accumulate like money. What is being called trust here is not trust in any kind of academic understanding. This is reputation. Allison, how do you differentiate Edelman's work on trust and how you define the word from an academic perspective. Well, trust uh, has an appreciation of reciprocity. It's about how we uh, expect business to behave. Reputation management says we tell a story, we deflect public attention, we make sure no one can gaze inside the corporation, and we do that to protect or support shareholder value. It is not interactive, it's defensive. The Edelman Trust Barometer uh, also, I think, ought to have all our attention because in 2018 and 2019, it put out these messages, uh, uh, and, and it was not the only firm, but it put out these messages saying the public now expects 
CEOs to stand up on controversial social and political questions. CEOs certainly listened. They certainly uh, seem to have felt they had any no choice. What the Edelman Trust Barometer does not seem to have asked the public is, how would you feel about CEOs standing up on a position you are violently opposed to? Because then I think we would have had a different answer. So this looks great when it's like, do you want companies to solve climate change or something like that? When it gets to, do you want CEOs standing up on behalf of the death penalty? Things look a little bit different and you start to be like, huh, maybe we should leave that to the political process. So. I certainly feel that this has been part of the story of drawing CEOs into kind of um, putting out these messages that aren't really uh, connected to their business or the problems that they can actually solve. And to some degree, that's caused the backlash that we are now in the middle of. Uh, Edelman has since backed off and said CEOs need to do something about polarization and be much more sober and restrained about risk and responsibility. But that's a perfect example of shifting in the wind and not having any firm principles. Yeah, no, I, I once described this in a political parlay as, you know, there there are forty percent of the of of the audience uh, that is with us and would march into hell with, for us, and then there's forty percent of the audience that that's exactly where they want us to go. Right, um, and 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 why, you know, and so I think. Um, you know, I certainly, again, hold ESG or stakeholder capitalism responsible for our current polarized, dysfunctional, horrible political situation. But I don't think this meaningless rhetoric has actually helped. Uh, and, and, and to some degree, um, it's, it's, it's got us into the pickle that we're in. So, so, Allison, to follow up on that. So how does a company or how should a company that's serious Sure. about their ESG commitments, or let's say climate commitments, right. how should they be telling their stories these days? I think, uh, and I've written about this also in Harvard Business Review, but I think you should identify one to three existential issues that are core to how you make money and that you have some leverage over. I think you need to then sharply differentiate what is an opportunity, what is a risk, what is an impact that is not yet at risk, but might become one in future. You need to be sober and restrained about what you're doing about those one to three issues. You need to uh, maybe report on another load of other issues without suggesting that you can solve those problems or be ambitious. And then finally, uh, once you've set those very sharp priorities, you need to think about your culture and inclusion and your work. You cannot say that issues of social identity, race, gender, fairness, equality are not relevant to your business. So you need to then think about your commitment to your work for workers, your commitment to uh, your internal culture and your commitment to your employees. So that's what I would recommend. Excellent. My, my uh, former boss, Jeff Immelt at GE used to say, we can't have hobbies, Gary, right? We've got to stick to what we know. And do we have any real expertise in this area to actually have some impact. And that's how we sort of filtered what we wanted to get involved in. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's a very, very good anchor, uh, uh, kind of back to basics. And I don't know that uh, anything I'm saying is particularly new. There are many, many kind of precedents. It just seems that in our current discourse, we've completely lost sight of the basics. And we're having a really weird conversation uh, where nobody is even speaking the same language or using the same terms in the same way. 
<laughs> well, well, you say it so well, Allison, and that's why that's why you're on the crux, and that's why you have a book coming out. Where can folks find your book? Pre-order it. Uh, you can order it on uh, the book buying platform uh, of your choice. If anybody is interested in having me come to speak to them, or in bulk buys, or anything like that, please get in touch with me directly. I have a website going up in the next week or so. Uh, but Amazon Bookshop.org. If you don't like Amazon, it's easy to find out there. It's called Higher Ground. My name's Alison Taylor. <laughs> oh, what one one thing we didn't cover, Gary, is how she came up with the title. The title was really, really difficult, but uh, yeah, Higher Ground is a song by Stevie Wonder. It came out the year I was born. I love it. I will definitely be playing it at the launch party. All right. All right. <laughs> Terrific. Well, Allison, thank you for being on The Crux, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Crux of the Story. Take Much. care. So great to talk to you both. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.